we can just say, listen, this isn't going to work, but it's been an amazing learning experience to learn how to communicate in a better way, to learn how to create different patterns of behavior, to learn how to do that. And so we both brought pretty big things and we both were just like, all right, safe space for you. You work through it. I'll help you. We'll talk about it. We'll discuss it. And my growth in those 90 days with with my first 90 day guy was brilliant. It was it was amazing. And I, I walked out of that being a very different person. Anytime that we can talk about subjects within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that we don't get the opportunity to talk about all the time, I will take that opportunity. So when presented with the opportunity to talk to Tanya Hale about divorce, well, just portions of this conversation about that, I jumped at the chance, and I know that you are going to love this episode of The Cultural Hall. It's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall, and excited to be able to talk about, well, probably a myriad of things, a potpourri, as we get into it with uh, Tanya Hell. Now, here's the deal. Uh, I said hell like I'm a Utah person, and so already I hate myself. Uh, I need to ask you, as many people will see the last name and associate you with theater and all of that whole family, is that you? Is that some sort of your family line? No, not. I mean, if it is, it's back far enough that that I don't know. And I'm not a huge genealogy person, so I don't know. Well, hopefully today we convert you because this is gotcha journalism as we try and get you to do your family history. I'm teasing. You probably do, though, because you are a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Get that question all the time in the state of Utah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, and you are a Tanya with a T-A, not a T-O, which makes me always want to say Tanya. It's my friend Tanya. But an ups Tanya. I go by Tanya. That's what my parents always called me, even though they spelled it with an A. So, Well, and that I think harkens back to that thing that we as members of the church do where it's like, hey, if we wanted to pronounce this this way, we would spell it this way. But no, no, no. The English language, we will not adhere to the rules of the English language. Let's just do it. Go ahead and do it the way that we would like. Yeah. I've, yeah. I've taught middle school as well. And um, yeah, the names that come through are sometimes a little bit surprising. Yeah and, yeah. and learning how I had one, one student once whose name was spelled K-O-N-A-R. And I was like, Conar? Uh-huh. I ended up being Connor. Sure. But I thought it was Conar. And I was yeah. like, that's actually pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Conar. Actually pretty cool, but also makes no sense in the English language. So like, I'll allow <laughs> the cool points of it. But it is a thing where it's like, like, what's your name? Travis. Oh, how do you spell it? T-A, uh, you know, emoticon. <laughs> then there's a P-H in there that's silent. And it's like, no, no, no. Like, we can't just throw letters and say this is what that name is. But you said you'll allow it. So I guess I have to allow it as well. Yeah. Well, yeah, because I'm the standard. Ab- absolutely. <laughs> yes. Yes. We hold all things to Tanya and she says, I'll allow it or get that out of here uh, and spits it out like dross. See, already we've com- we've covered like six different topics here and only just the first little bit. Yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned middle school teacher. I have uh-huh. to know about that. That seems... Now, here's what I know about middle school teachers. Uh, middle school teachers are a rare breed that like their job, certainly, but also th- like the, the middle school teachers that love their job, like they love it so passionately that it almost seems a little uncomfortable or there's everyone else who is like, listen, I didn't even talk to my own kids while they were, <laughs> you know, seventh, eighth and ninth grade. I, I'm guessing you fall in the line of loving the middle school kids. I adore them. I think they're so fun. Um, I just think they're their own breed of craziness. And and I teach eighth graders, which is the pinnacle 
of craziness because here we here we've got these kids who are not only going through puberty which totally trashes their body i mean in a good way but it's just their body's changing from a little kid body into an adult body and there's a lot of stuff that has to happen for that to go on and their hormones are in a in a state that they've never been in before and so these poor kids are trying to figure out you know the boys are all of a sudden they've been these cool chill kids and all of a sudden the boys are so angry they just want to punch everything <laughs> mm-hmm. and the girls have been cool and chill and all of a sudden they want to cry five times a day just because and so they're going through that which is confusing and unnerving and frustrating And then they're in this psychotic place where they want to be part of their parents' lives and desperate for their parents' love and attention, but then they hate their parents and want to completely disassociate from them. And so they've got all these these dichotomies going on in their lives of they want to completely fit in and have nobody notice or have everybody notice them. And then they want to be in a place where nobody sees them. And so they're, they're just this mess. They're such a mess, but they are so... When you can establish a good relationship with them, they also are so endearing with that craziness. I, I absolutely love middle school. Mm. So, And people probably are trying to put some pieces together. They're like, okay, so we're talking about middle school teaching <laughs> here in the cultural hall. Well, I, I mean, maybe. Maybe there will be some elements of all that. But the way this episode came about is uh, our friend Robin the Red, I think she commented on something of yours on uh, on Facebook and said, hey, what a great episode this would be. Uh, for the cultural hall. And I said, yeah, you bet. And you said, yeah, you bet. And here we are, here we are. Uh, just being able to talk about uh, all things. So a shout out uh, to Robin the Red. Thank you. You can always suggest episodes of the cultural hall. Contact at theculturalhall.com or you can find at the cultural hall on any social media. So Tanya, in addition to doing all that, uh, give me an idea of who you are as a person. Are, are, are you a lifer of the church, a convert? Give me some of that background. Uh, yeah, my parents were members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I grew up that way, um, served a mission, which was a pivotal time for me to go from being just committed to living the, the gospel to being converted to it. It was really such a big change for me to really understand why I was making the choices I was making and what I was doing. Um, I want to ask a little bit about that. Uh, yeah. Give me an idea. What year is it when you serve a mission? Um, let's see. I was. It was 1989 when okay. I went on my mission. So that gives people, I think, an interesting, um, you know, look into it because certainly, like in the in the 2010s of women serving mission, it's far different than in the 80s when women served missions. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so 80s. Where did you go? I went to the Atlanta, Georgia mission. Okay, what's that like? Um, it was fun. It was it was enjoy. It was what I knew. It was also super super difficult for me. Um, And not necessarily because of the culture, but more just because I think it was a time for God to say, okay, like you think you got all this. Let's, let's teach you how to be a little bit more submissive (laughs) in your life. Because up to that point, I just always, I I went on a mission thinking, you know what, I'm just going to be so good. I'm going to rock this. I'm going to use my, my wonderful personality and people are just going to flock to me because they're just going to go, oh, she's cute. She's nice. She's wonderful. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't the case that I really had to dig a little bit deeper in those years to figure out um, what I was doing there, what I wanted um, and develop a relationship with God and with the spirit and with why I was living what I was doing, living, why I was serving a mission, what I was doing. So it really became a time of conversion for me where I went from, I'm going to do it because it's traditional in my family, because it feels comfortable, because that's where I'm accepted. 
to a space of, yeah, I'm all in on this because, because I feel the impact in my life and I recognize the impact and it's, it's valuable to me. So let's open that up a little bit. What, what, I mean, I can remember sort of being the same, uh, where, you know, when I went out, I, I, I remember the old sort of seminary videos. And for those of us of a certain generation will remember where it's like, he's going off on his mission and as he's walking down the walkway, it goes from his suit into armor as he's going into the battlefield (laughs) and all this stuff. And, and I remember doing that. And then I remember like landing in Cleveland, which is where I served. And I was like, this is more racial diversity than I've ever experienced ever in my life up to this mm-hmm. point. And that was just like the first thing that I noticed was different. And then, you know, being on my own and dealing with other people and all of these things continued to be tried. What, what, uh, what were those humbling or an humbling, uh, experience that you had where you were like, Oh yeah, no, I thought I had this, but clearly I got some learning to do. Mm. I think probably one of the biggest ones for me was, um, I had a mission president who is an accountant. So he was pretty numbers focused, mm-hmm. which would make sense, right? Sure. Um, and I was in an area that was pretty rich. Back in the 80s, um, there would be signs that would say new homes now affordable, low 300,000s. Uh-huh. So back in the late 80s, early 90s, those were some pretty million dollar ishy homes. Yeah. And yeah. that was my area. And we would, we just could not find people to teach. And we would knock doors every day, all day, and talk to two people, two house cleaners. Hmm. And we just struggled and struggled. And I think in the six months I was there, I taught maybe three discussions. And it was so hard for me coming from a place where I was like, listen, I got this. I'm, I'm like an awesome person. I'm confident. I'm whatever. And to go into this place where it just felt like just a huge failure. And our mission president would have us go up at zone conference and write our numbers up on the board, Oof. you know, yeah. which, was, which I look back now and I'm like, Ugh, I should have just boycotted that. But yeah. I didn't, I didn't have what it took at the time to do that. And I didn't recognize that how harmful that was for me. Um, but, you know, going up and writing down all of our numbers, we, we did this many hours of tracking, which was always on point this many hours of work, which was already always on point this many copies of the book of Mormon. We shared zero, this many discussions, zero, this many, you know, and I remember I was the senior companion and I remember writing those numbers up on the board and hitting all those zeros and turning around to look at all these missionaries. And I just burst into tears. Mm. I was just like, it was, it was a failure. Like I'd never known in my life. And, and actually I look back and I'm like, yeah, so not a failure. Yeah. I like it. It taught me so much, but at the time I felt like I was drowning in failure and it was really, um, really hard for me. And it was, it was a point where I, I really had to kind of under, I had to come to terms with it for me. Like, what does this mean for me? And, and how do I want to approach this and how do I want to work through this? And so um, I'm glad to say that I did, you know, I, I, I kind of figured out how to, how to move forward from that point and, and finish my mission in what I felt was a successful way. And, um, but yeah, it was, it was hard. Up, up until that point in my life, it was just, you know, if I ever wanted to do something, I just was like, oh, okay, I'm going to do this. And I would do it. And I would usually be pretty successful at it. Hmm. And things didn't come really hard for me. So going on a mission where I just thought it was going to be the same thing, you know, I'll just go out. And of course, it's just going to be easy. And it wasn't. In fact, it was the exact opposite of that for me. It was really hard. 
the parallel obvious uh, life lesson is how many times do we feel like we're doing the tracting hours and doing the work hours, but then when we go to look at the other parts of the air quotes squ- scoreboard and it's a bunch of zeros and we're like, what? We're trying. Yeah. I'm trying. What's going on? And you feel like a failure, but you know, yeah. aren't. Uh, how how was the uh, getting used to? Because you're Utah born and raised, right? Um, Idaho. Actually. Idaho. Born okay. in Idaho. Raised yes. there. Yeah. I how have was, been in Utah for 17 years, so. How was, how was uh, Idaho to Georgia? That's got to be at least a little <laughs> bit different. It was a lot different, but um, not to mention in Idaho, we, in the southeast where I grew up, we build a house and plant trees around it. Uh-huh. In Atlanta, it was, you tear down trees to build houses, which was fascinating to me. It was beautiful. It's a beautiful place of the United States. Um, but beyond that, I didn't. The, the culture, I don't know. I, it didn't, it didn't shock me. It didn't, I mean, obviously a lot more diversity in culture, a mm-hmm. lot more um, blacks, which I loved. I, I love the diversity. And I think that's one reason why I enjoy the middle school that I'm in is I love the diversity there as well. And um, I just think people are beautiful. I, I love the different places that people come from, the different ideas people have. Um, all the different things that people bring to the table, I think is fascinating for me. So so you get home and what, are we married less than six months from when we get home? Are we talking three months, married, got, engaged off the plane? So I, no, I got married almost exactly a year after I got home. Okay. Um, and it was one of those BYU marriages that everybody just kind of like gets that cringy look on their face and goes, oh, gosh, what did you do? Like it was one, it was one of those. I don't know you, but we're chatting and I feel like we're supposed to get married. So let's get married in three months and you're going to be gone for, for six weeks of that. Okay. Not a big deal. We're both working (laughs) full-time and going to school full-time, not a big deal. And so we got married um, and it was a pretty rough situation. I don't think either one of us were, were really, well, not in that much time. I mean, neither one of us had developed a relationship with each other. We didn't, we weren't really friends yet. We didn't really love each other yet. And yet we felt like we were supposed to get married. And so we did. So when and, you say rough, was it like the communication was rough? Like uh, you didn't everything. like each other rough? Like we bought a, we, we got a bad apartment. <laughs> we didn't like the same food. Like give me an idea of rough. Um, it was just rough communication wise. We, we just did not have a relationship at all. Mm-hmm. Um, stayed married for 24 years. It wasn't for lack of trying over the years, but I think both of us just didn't have the tools. And, you know, when I talk about that experience on my mission of, you know, I'm I'm putting in the tracking hours, I'm putting in the work hours, I'm doing all this stuff. I felt like that's how it was in my marriage, like doing everything I knew how to do. I mean, I, I, I don't think either one of us were in it to fail. Sure. We were both doing what we need, what we, what we knew how to do, but we just did not have the tools. And so we could not communicate at the level we needed to, and we could not understand one another. And it just felt, I remember so many years just going, what is this? We're both good people. Why can't we figure this out? Why can't we make this work? And um, just never really could. And we struggled the whole time. Um, have four amazing kids through the process. And I think speaking for myself, I know that I learned a lot over the years. I learned that I can do some really tough things. Um, but eventually we got divorced after 24 years. So 24 years as a, a, as a fellow divorced person, that seems, uh, like a really long time. I made it almost six (laughs) and I made it about five and a half years longer than I should have. There was this uh, distinct moment where I remember going, well, 
this will not, <laughs> this is not going to end well. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you kind of try and you, and especially where you feel like those things are, you know, sort of hinted or, or ordained of God where you're like, Hey, no, remember we had the feeling. Absolutely. We had this feeling we should do with it clearly because this feeling was there. There's something that I'm not doing that's allowing that feeling to be unlocked in all of its glory, be able to play out. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, and I had that same thing. I mean, those, those cute little phrases we hear all the time, like I didn't get married to get divorced. Well, Mm -hmm. of course you didn't. Yeah. Right. But that doesn't mean it sometimes is not the best option. And you know, marriage is not 50, 50, it's a hundred, hundred. Well, okay. Yeah. But if you don't have the tools, if you don't know how to communicate, if you don't know how to connect intimately, if you don't, and not just intimately physically, but intimately emotionally, if you don't know how to be vulnerable, you know, there's, there's a lot missing in what you're going to be able to create in a marriage. And neither of us had those tools. And so, I mean, we stayed married, I think out of, out of, sheer determination. I think for me, I'm, I'm like, well, I'm kind of grateful for a lot of years that I was such a prideful person because that kept me from getting divorced. Mm -hmm. Right. Because I, dealing with the stigma of being a divorced member of the church was just, I couldn't even fathom going there. And I, and I didn't for a lot of years, but I don't know. We just, we stayed in it because I just kept thinking, listen, God told me to do this. I know that this is where I'm I'm supposed to be. I really felt that. And I, I never really though I fantasized about divorce a lot during those years because it was so hard. And that sounds horrible to say, but um, I never really put it on the table as an option. Hmm. Um, I want to take a break. And when we come back, I want to know what that, that moment was. And I'll certainly share if it's appropriate that moment where you're like, yeah, here we go. And then you are bold faced with the, you know, the stigma of being a member of the church and then having the big D that you wear around your your neck and all that kind of stuff. We'll come back and we'll do that in the second block of the cultural hall. I want to take a brief moment and tell you about Best DJ in Utah. You can go to bestdjinutah.com. Who is that me? It's also three other guys that I have hired to work for me. Why? Because business has been so great. Uh, We've been able to help a lot of couples as they've been celebrating their weddings, been able to do a lot of uh, holiday parties, uh, birthday parties, being able to just to do community events as well. We do travel, so I know you're thinking, well, listen, I live in Nevada. I live in Idaho. I've even gone so far as Louisiana. I've been down to Texas. I've been up to Washington Uh, All of the places certainly is possible to be able to play music in. Obviously, you just need to get there. You can go to bestdjinutah.com. Let's start the conversation about it. You're getting married. You're thinking about getting married. You'd like to get married. Whatever the thing may be, bestdjinutah.com. Hey, friends. Dan, the laptop man from PC Laptops. As you know, there's been a huge video card shortage for computers. We have tons of NVIDIA and AMD video cards right now available with complete systems. Check us out right now at PCLaptops.com. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, remember you can always become a Patreon saint of the Cultural Hall. Uh, You go to patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. What do you get for doing that? Well, you get all of our back episodes, over 570 episodes that are easy to listen to in a way that only Patreon makes that possible. Uh, Second thing, you get to be a part of that secret but not sacred Facebook group. Uh, That's where everyone's hanging out and having tangential conversations. Like, you remember the first five minutes of me and Tanya today? It's like that, but constantly and on social media. And you get to know that you are helping keep the Cultural Hall around. Encourage you to do that. Go to... uh, 
patreon.com forward slash the culture hall. Oh, and you get to see Tanya's cute face for crying out loud. The video's only posted in that Facebook group. So Tanya, the big D, it is a, a stigma that I remember, you know, my ex-wife, this round one, I, I think that it was the stigma that kept her from finally just saying that we're done for for many years. I never felt that sort of stigma. I was like, listen, lots of people are divorced, but there the stigma definitely does exist. What what do you feel like that is the stigma within the church and being divorced? Um for me it was a it was a message of failure. Like I can't do this. Like everybody else can figure out this marriage thing and I can't figure it out. Mm-hmm. And what kind of a horrible person must I be to be able to walk, to walk away from a marriage and to put my kids through the challenge of a divorce? Um, that was hard. Were you guys married in the temple? Yes, we were. Yeah, so you have that extra element of like, yes. this is the the bonds of an eternal marriage and, yeah. you know, that sort of what will happen to our kids because we are, you know, breaking that off. Yeah. How, do you, how do you find your way through all that? Because I, I genuinely think that there are multiple people listening to this who would be divorced if they could just wrap their head around about what they would do once they got divorced. Yeah, you know, just one step back, I think an extra piece for me was when because we got married the way that we did and we both were like, listen, I feel like God's telling us to get married, mm-hmm. even though we don't know each other from Joe blow down the street. Right. Mm-hmm. There was also that piece for me of this was so God ordained, like God told us to do this. So how do you walk away from this? So for me, it was, it was just a, about 20 years into my marriage. It was on my mind a lot because I just, I didn't know how to deal with it. It was so hard and so many difficult things and hard for him as well. I was not an ideal spouse at that point either because I didn't have the tools. And so it was hard for both of us. And I was listening to a speaking engagement from John Lund. It was a it was a something I checked out from the library. And he's an LDS psychologist. And he was talking at a women's conference and he mentioned something. He stopped in the middle of saying something about love. And he said, by the way, for you women who are divorced, I want you to realize that maybe God knew that your marriage wasn't going to be an eternal marriage, Hmm. but maybe he also knew that this was the best space for you to learn what you needed to learn so you could become the person you wanted to become. And um, that's probably not true for everybody, but I will tell you that as I was driving my Honda Odyssey down the road, (laughs) listening to that, um, I had one of the most powerful spiritual manifestations that I've had, that that was true for me and that it was okay. And that, um, that God knew that this was part of my path and that it was okay. It was okay for me to be divorced. And that was my own, my own personal insight into that. And I will say that it still took me another four years, partially out of fear Mm -hmm. of wrapping my head around the idea. Well, what does it mean when I really am divorced? Um, also, you know, last ditch efforts, trying to get my husband to go to counseling and, and trying to do all of this kind of stuff. Um, but also when things would get really hard and I would just pray and I would say, okay, Heavenly Father, I am so done here. I would just always get this feeling that said, would say, just wait, just hold on. And I, there was one time I was just so upset. I remember I literally looked up to heaven for my prayer and I was like, are you freaking kidding me? Like, you want me to stay in this? This is so hard. And um, and I just always just kind of came back to that peaceful feeling that just said, just wait, hmm. just wait, it'll be okay. 
And so I just, I just stuck with it. And I kept trying to, to figure out what I needed to do. And I eventually switched from that, that first year after that, I had invested so much in trying to, to fix things with my husband and it just wasn't happening. And finally, after a year of that, a friend asked me, she says, well, how are your kids doing? And it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I was just like, I feel like I've neglected my relationship with my kids these last years, this mm-hmm. last year, mm-hmm. trying so hard with my then husband. And I just decided, okay, I'm done trying with him. I got to help my kids because this is going to be tough for them. And so the next three years were really just spent focusing on my kids and trying to do that. And I I really kind of put my marriage to the side because I felt like that was what I was supposed to do. And that might obviously my own personal experience, probably not the best choice for everybody. But for me, I felt like that was what I needed to do. And then eventually, I think kind of a brilliant thing about life is when we learn to move into the space of acceptance of where we are, Mm -hmm. I think that that's when a lot of times the doors open up. So for me, after about four years of marriage, I just had this experience one night where I was just like, okay, I think this is where I am the next five years until my kids graduate from high school. And I moved, I literally felt a shift in my body moving into acceptance that, okay, I can do this and I'm going to do this. And this, this is what I'm supposed to do. And no kidding. I woke up the next morning with a feeling that said, okay, now it's time. Hmm. And I feel like I had to get myself to a good space first and then it was okay. And so, you know, prayed, fasted, templed that week, you know, just going, you know, really, this is, it's time after four years of, of knowing it's coming now it's time. And I went to the temple and grabbed handfuls of tissues, just thinking, all right, this is going to be a tough one. And I didn't use one of them. Hmm. I sat through the temple session and I was, I just felt like, okay, it's all right. It's going to be okay. It's time. And so I moved forward at that point. And, you know, because of that, most of my grieving was done, has, had already been through the grieving process of losing a marriage and, and walking away from that. And so by the time my divorce was final, I was like, okay, this is, this is the right decision. And I, I never really looked back and thought, was it the right decision? Was it the right timing? Because through my experiences, I knew that it was the right decision and that the timing was right. So when you talk to people of, um, who might find themselves in, let's label it maybe just an unsatisfying uh, marriage currently, or, you know, a, a non- I almost said productive, but that's not necessarily what I want to say. But just, you know, they feel like it could be better. Maybe divorce is on their table. Maybe it's not on their table. Like, what kind of advice do you give those people? Your experience is so individual that it would seem it would seem hard and sort of prescriptive to be like, well, you need to make sure that there's this amount of years and then, you know, do these things and this and this and this. How do you how do you help people that, you know, maybe maybe counseling is the answer or you know, maybe they just need to up and leave right now and not wait a single more day. Like, how do you, how do you give advice around this? Well, so in my other life, besides being a middle school teacher, I'm a life coach and I coach my, my focus is coaching people through divorce, after divorce, dating after divorce. Um, the, the place where I try and help my clients get to is that space of loving it before you leave it. Hmm. You know, get to a space of of peace within you, learn what there is to learn about you in this tough space. And then you take that new you into your new space. And a lot of times when clients get to this space where they learn how to accept full responsibility for what they're doing, 
how it's happening for them, then the path clears for them. Like they, they, it just becomes so clear what they need to do. I would never be so bold as to say, well, you need to leave or you need to stay or you need to do whatever. Cause I don't know that for, for the people that I work with, mm -hmm. but they will know that I help them get to a place where that becomes clear for them, where they can figure out for themselves. Oh, now I see, I see where I've been adding to this. And if I clean up my own stuff through here and take responsibility, then then a lot of things clear up in, in the marriage situation, or they may clean up all their own stuff and go, yeah, now it's really clear what I need to do. And, and getting to a place where you love it before you leave it doesn't mean that you're going to stay. Mm -hmm. It just means that it clears up the water so you can see what's going on and you know what to do. The idea of responsibility or accepting your part in things, I think, is a human condition that we push so hard against. Because oh, you never, you never hear people when uh, they're, well, or very rarely, I guess you should, I should say, uh, when they're getting divorced, they're you, you very rarely will hear, hear someone say, "Oh, well, yeah, we got divorced because I'm the worst spouse ever <laughs> because I didn't nurture, you know, that kind of thing." It's always, "Well, they did this and they were uh -huh. this and we didn't, you know, couldn't right. do this and and all that." How how in in a society that doesn't take a, uh, responsibility for anything, let's you know, let's leave marriage outside of it. Uh, or included as part of it, but we just don't take uh, responsibility for the things that we do. What do you do to help people recognize, oh yeah, no, this is what you're doing. You need to accept this responsibility that this is your, you know, these, this is a condition based on your actions. Um, some pretty straightforward discussions with them. Can we you walk know? one out? Um, yeah, so I was working with a client just last week and she was she was just talking about how her ex-husband was very controlling and the kinds of things that he did in the marriage and I I had a pretty frank discussion. I'm like, "Yeah, but look at how you were controlling." Hmm. And she's like, "Well, what do you mean?" And I'm like, "Well, your response to him doing that was to you know, to try and control his behavior, to say, "Well, if I do this, then he won't self-harm or he won't do this. He won't. I'm like, yeah, you're being just as controlling and manipulative. It mm -hmm. may sound really lovely. And this is the thing that I love about what we do, because we put all these, these phrases in place. Like, I just want them to be happy. <laughs> I just want everybody to get along. Well, okay. That's all sweet and lovely, but it's all very manipulative and controlling. And at some level we have to decide that people get to live and get along however they want. And if they don't want to be happy, I have zero control over that. And, and so learning, so for her, it was like, we ended up the entire 50 minute session with her just going, whoa, whoa, like I'm seeing this for the first time. I'm seeing how I'm stepping into control. I'm seeing how I'm stepping into manipulation. And, you know, when we got back together this week, she was like, wow, she says that was a game changer for me in realizing that. And sometimes I, I think I'm very compassionate and kind to my clients for sure. When I, when I show them these things, but until we're willing to see it, we're never going to be able to address it. That awareness piece is huge. And, and one thing that I have to offer clients is that, listen, I can show you things that you're not seeing because I'm not emotionally involved here. Um, so I, I see things that you're not seeing. And I can show you where you're being controlling. I can show you where you're being manipulative, where you're being passive aggressive, because we all move into those behaviors. Every single one of us moves into those when we're scared, when we're fearful, when we don't know what to do, when things are hard. 
but those behaviors don't help us. We have to recognize our own. So, so that's the kind of conversation that I have that helps people to see like, oh, look, look what I'm bringing to the table. And I think that really, honestly, it's only when I accept responsibility for what I'm doing that I can start to change it. Because as long as I'm blaming somebody else, I'm in victim mode. Mm. And whenever I'm in victim mode, I never step into hero mode of being the hero of my own story, of creating what I want to create. I'm at the mercy of somebody else's behavior. And I think that's what I did for the first year after my marriage, complete victim mode. Like it was all his fault. And then I started doing some learning and I started going, oh, wait a minute. Like, what about this for me? And as soon as I started stepping into that space, everything changed for me. And I've become a completely different person than I was when I was married. And um, so grateful for that process for me to move into something different. And that's why that's what I try and do to help other people right now is to also step into that place of 100% responsibility and let's look at it and let's start, start looking at what I'm bringing to the table and let's start making adjustments there. So there's a broader uh, gospel principle, I think that applies in what you're saying, where the idea of, you know, this life being able to be um, the the opportunity to be a test for us to be able to have agency and and so many of those things though we all definitely have our own agency when we sort of rely or or live in that face uh, uh, in that space rather of uh, of being a victim it very much gives away some of that agency not mm-hmm. that we don't have it but but from a from a gospel principle this idea of being the hero of our own story really becomes more of walking out God's plan. Oh, absolutely. Because being the hero says, I'm taking full responsibility for myself. I am accepting my own agency to create what I want to create here. Hmm. And I'm not allowing somebody else to take over my agency. And I think that that's when we, when we move into victim mode, what we're doing is we're giving up that agency. We're blaming somebody else for the condition of where our life is and do other people's actions impact us? Absolutely. They do like, like other people cir- bring circumstances into my life, but I get to choose everything else. I get to choose what I think about that. I, and my thoughts create my feelings, my feelings create my actions. And then there we go. There's the results of my life. So other people can bring other circumstances to me for sure. But yeah, my I- response to that is the big piece. I remember one of the most difficult things um, for me, kind of walking away from my marriage, because it was for me, you know, it was six months where I was like, okay, and then almost five and a half years where I was like, this was, this is not mm-hmm. great. And, and literally walking away going, these are the things that I need to be able to come back into this home. If you do these things, if we can work on these things, if these are the conditions of which this is, I would love to be back and do this. And when I left, I knew that, you know, that that was done. That was not mm-hmm. going to be a, a different thing. But then having to accept that, you know, part of the condition that I was in, then being divorced, then being single again in my, you know, mid to late 30s, um, was because of choices that she made. Now, the agency which she expressed in being like, listen, I'm not going to work on this. This is not going to be a thing. We're going to get divorced. But then having to sort of reconcile because I didn't want to be any sort of victim, you know, that, 
okay, I'm not going to be married because of her choice and that's her agency and she could have chosen a different path and maybe that would be different um, for me. But now because of those things, I have the opportunity to react and be able to choose a life from here. And, you know, now looking at it in a second marriage and, and recognizing, oh, this is what a good marriage feels like. Oh, this is what communicating is like. Oh, this is how, you know, all these things are. No, knowing that, you know, likely it was just part of God's plan for me to learn a lot uh, from that first marriage and be able to to uh, to have a second marriage be successful. But having someone's agency impact my life, although it happens every day, all the time, um, something so close to you, that, that, that becomes really difficult to kind of deal with and not feel like a victim. Mm, yeah, I would agree. I would agree, but it's vital that we figure out how to do that. Right. Because if we don't figure out how to do it, we spend our life miserable feeling at the mercy of somebody or something else. And that leaves us completely powerless to create what we want to create in our lives. And I do not believe that that is God's plan for us to be powerless. I think God wants us to be empowered. In fact, when I stand before the judgment bar of God, there's going to be nobody there but Christ and me and God, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to be able to point fingers and say, yeah, but he was doing this and she was doing this. It's going to be me. And I have to learn, regardless of my circumstance, how to show up the way that I want to show up, how to be the Christ-like person that I want to be. And, and in saying that, I'm not saying that that means that we lay down and we let things happen. I think we definitely still get to make choices of what we want to be engaged in and what we don't. Just because let's say this was not my circumstance, but let's say a spouse has an affair. Like that doesn't mean I need to stay in that marriage, but I still get to choose how I show up there. Mm -hmm. I still get to choose whether, whether I show up angry and spiteful and revengeful or whether I show up with compassion and kindness and still say, but this is not for me. Mm -hmm. This is not the space that I want to be. I think sometimes we think that if we're going to leave something, we have to do it with anger and hatred. And I think that that's the worst place to be in when we leave something. Mm -hmm. And so when we leave a marriage, if we're leaving with anger and hatred, it's going to, the, the healing process is so much more difficult. I think if we leave with this space of compassion that says, you know what, I'm, I'm sad that this is where you are. I feel compassion for your plight and for your difficulties, but I choose not to be engaged with this anymore. Hmm. I, I think that that is the most compassionate and loving and Christ-like place to be when we choose to leave. Yeah. And the hard part about that is you feel like it's going to feel so good to just roast that person, whether it's mm -hmm. on social media or, and I've seen those and, and I read those posts and I just go, Ooh, okay. Oh, all right. Yeah. Are you going to regret, are you going to regret that you had, that you decided to share this here? Or, you know, you just talk to people that are so embittered about that and you feel like it's going to feel really good. Trust me. I like, I right. felt that I was like, Oh, and I could say this and I want to tell all of it, you know, but being able to, you know, to walk away and say, you know what, people be, are able to, to make that choice for themselves. And, and, you know, I, maybe I would have chosen something different and had mm -hmm. a different path, but, but this is what it is. And, and so what can I do with that time? It's pretty powerful what you're saying. I appreciate you saying it so succinctly and so frankly. I want to take another break. Uh, and when we get back, we're going to talk about the other big D, which is dating after divorce. Uh, and I, I can't wait because I'm sure you've had some fun experiences <laughs> with that. We'll come back and do that in the third block of the cultural hall. <laughs> 
Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Oh, hey, is this seat taken? My name is Kurt Frankham from the Leading Saints podcast, and it's about time I make it to the back row of the Cultural Hall and tell you what's happening. Your friends over at Leading Saints are organizing another virtual conference, and this time we're talking about how do we lead the rising generation. We're calling it the Young Saints Virtual Conference. That's right. How do we lead 12-year-olds and beyond in the church and even the young adults? They live in a different world than many of us when we were young, and they face unique challenges. So we've gathered 20-plus presenters who have unique experience working with youth and finding success. To get all the details and to see who is speaking and what topics will be covered, visit leadingsaints.org youth. You can find the link in the show notes or simply visit leadingsaints.org youth. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, if you have not yet left a review for the Cultural Hall, please do so. You know, you can give like stars and a rating system over on Spotify now, which is cool, especially because we know increasingly, well, maybe, maybe not so increasingly. That's a Spotify tangent. We'll go for another time. But you can rate us on Spotify. You can also leave a review if you get us on your Apple podcasts. Love for you to do that because people will shop around and they'll say, what are other people saying about this show? And then they'll read your comments and you will inspire them to be a lifer or convert to the cultural hall. So please uh, leave that review at Apple Podcasts. Uh, Tanya, I have heard from some people, whether they were joking or not, the reason why they stay married is because they think dating would be far worse than anything they would ever experience, <laughs> even in their unsatisfying marriage. You now, uh, I haven't heard you allude to a second round or a version 2.0 as far as husband goes. That makes me think that you are now a single person and uh, a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That would be true. Yes. How, how is that going? Uh, well, so my journey is about the first four years of maybe three and a half years, I was just like, why would I want to mess up my life with a man? Like mm. things are so good right now. Yeah. Men are and the I, worst. I, I wasn't a man hater. I was just like, listen, my life is so good being single. Mm-hmm. I'm so happy. I'm, I'm growing. I'm progressing. Literally. I'm, I'm probably in the best space that I've ever been in, in my entire life right now. I just love where I am. I love what I'm doing. And but then I kind of hit a point where I was, I was working with my own life coach about this. And, and she's just like, we were talking about, this was two years ago, um, talking about dating. And I, and I made that comment, why would I want to mess up on my life with a man? She's like, well, what would marriage look like to you? And I was like, oh, well, and I just gave her a, a rundown list of what I thought it would look like based off of my experience. You know what my brain is saying, oh, well, this is what marriage is. And she just kind of looked at me and she's like, well, you just don't choose somebody like that. (laughs) And I, I know that sounds totally simple, but my brain was like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Right. Like I get to choose a man who doesn't treat me that way. I get to choose somebody who really wants to partner up and create this, this emotional, intimate 
physical connection. I get to choose what I want. I, and I know that I, like I said, that sounds silly, but there was a piece of me that was like, wait a minute. Like it doesn't have to be like it was the last time. And so I, re I worked with my coach for several weeks on that in, in changing my ideas about that. And then, um, actually, I guess that was just a year and a half ago. And then about a year ago, there's a, a, a lady that I follow where I got my life coach certification through the life coach school. Her name is Brooke Castillo. And she presented this idea called the 90 day relationship. And, and I will say about a year before um, my aha with my own life coach, I had dated someone for about six months and it came out after six months. It was one of those stories where everybody just, their jaw drops and they go, what? Mm -hmm. I found out after six months that he was not divorced and that he did not have a job. And it was one of those things where I was completely, completely taken aback. He was so good at every day at work. He was telling me this person came by my desk today. And this is what, you know, just, and he never messed up schedules. I mean, it, he was really, really good at what he was doing. And, and so, you know, I'd been through that. So again, I was like, Whoa, like yeah. I don't trust dating. Like this is, yeah. this is a place that I don't want to go because anyway, so, so that had happened. Then I had that experience with the coach. And then last January, um, Brooke Castillo did this class on 90 day relationships and it was so intriguing to me. And she talked about moving into relationships in a very intentional way. Like we are moving into this, having a plan, not just seeing where it goes, but really doing this. And, and she had, she did like five hour long episodes on this 90 day relationship. And I was like, that's intriguing to me. And at that point I had gotten back on a couple of dating websites and so I went out with this, this guy and we had an incredible time. We just really connected. And then, so we, then we went out the next day, spent another five or six hours together. And then, so I've got this day two and I start thinking, what about this 90 day thing with this guy? Like, how would this work? And so, um, day three, I texted him and I'm like, Hey, you want to come over for dinner? And do you want to talk about something called the 90 day relationship? And he was like, sure, let's do it. So <laughs> Good for him. I know. Super scary yeah. for both of us. But so on day three, we talked about it and we talked about what that would look like. And we talked about like, what are the rules of engagement that we want to do with this? And one of them was like, okay, how are we going to manage conflict? Like absolutely no back burner issues. We, we just don't put anything on the back burner. It all goes right. We, everything gets talked about, but here are the rules for how we talk about it. And we established that. And we talked about um, how, if I have an issue with how you're unloading the dishwasher, I have to completely own that that's my issue. It's not yours. You're not doing it wrong. I just have issues with it. And so when I approach something, I have to say, okay, like, like I'm really struggling with how the dishwasher is being loaded. And then your job is to show up and do not allow yourself to go into defensive mode, but your job is to show up with all the curiosity and say, oh, tell me all the things about loading the dishwasher. And so then I just have this conversation. I'm like, listen, well, when the, when the big glasses get put up top, they get all crusty in the bottom. And, and so they've got to go on the bottom because that's where they get clean. And, you know, and then you get to completely hear. So you ask me 10 or 15 questions about loading the dishwasher and how it works. And we move into this complete space of, of curiosity and compassion for each other, as opposed to 
well, I'm defensive because you're telling me I'm loading it wrong and I'm digging in because yeah, those dishes have got to be clean. And so, so we set up all the rules of engagement. How, how often are we going to contact each other? How's the money going to work when we go out on dates? When do you pay? When do I pay? We talked about all that stuff and we went into a 90 day relationship and it was so brilliant because one of the things there is really learning how to create a safe space for the other person to bring not, I mean, it's easy to bring our good stuff to the table. Sure, It's hard to bring our difficult stuff to the table. And so really creating a safe space for the other person to do that. So within a week, this guy and I had brought our biggest issues and laid them out on the table. And when he brings his, my job is to say, wow, fascinating. Let me know what you need help with while you work through this, because there's so many of these things we can't work through in isolation. We really need to be in a relationship to work through them. And I brought my stuff and it was big stuff and laid it on the table. And I was like, okay. And he was like, okay. You know, which I think if we hadn't had that 90 day container that says, listen, all in for 90 days, at the end of 90 days, either one of us can walk we can just say, listen, this isn't going to work, but it's been an amazing learning experience to learn how to communicate in a better way, to learn how to create different patterns of behavior, to learn how to do that. And so we both brought pretty big things and we both were just like, all right, safe space for you. Hmm. You work through it. I'll help you. We'll talk about it. We'll discuss it. And my growth in those 90 days with, with my first 90 day guy was brilliant. It was, it was amazing. And I, I walked out of that being a very different person. And I actually did a podcast on it because I was, I was like, listen, this, this is, this was so amazing. It was such a place of growth for me. And then, um, you know, a couple of dates here and there in between. And then I did another 90 day with another guy later on, um, the end of last summer, Mm -hmm. we started another 90 day relationship. And again, it was, it was brilliant. And the things that it taught me about how to create space for another person to show up as them and to not be freaked out by their their flaws and their faults. And, and I realized that a lot of issues that we might think are red flag issues are actually just human issues. They're human flags, right? Like this person's a human, of course, they're going to bring stuff to the table and we need to work through that. Um, I'm currently in my third 90 day relationship. So, and this one is, is completely, it's, it's a very different experience in a very, very good way. Um, and the thing that I've really connected with this time around is, is the idea that we have patterns of behavior that we create in our dysfunctional marriages. Mm-hmm. And those patterns of behavior are part of the dysfunction. It's part of what makes things not work. And we have to tap into what those patterns are, which is a part of the coaching that I do with my clients and that I've gotten for myself, really recognizing what those are. And so as, as this, this newest 90 day guy, 90 day number three, right? Um, as he's come along and we've both been very clear and very open about, listen, these were my patterns of behavior. This is what caused dysfunction in my previous marriage. And both of us being 100% responsible for the crap that we engaged in and that we brought, we've been able to say, okay, so in this new relationship, what, how, what pattern do we want to create? That's going to create more of what we want. So we've actually gone into it saying, okay, listen, if this is the end place that we want to create where we have this kind of intimacy, we have this kind of vulnerability, we have this kind of connection and communication. How do we create that? And how do we set up these patterns of behavior? So no part of this relationship has just been a, oh, let's just go out on a date and see what happens. (laughs) It has been intentional from day one of 
listen, how do we want to interact? How do we want to, to communicate? What do we, what things do we talk about? How do we talk about it? What do we do? And so we're creating completely different patterns of behavior. And so I just noticed this last weekend that, that there was a part of me that, that I kind of wanted to move back into a, a previous pattern of behavior. And it felt so uncomfortable in the new relationship because it's not been a part of this new relationship. And I thought, isn't that fascinating that something yeah. that used to come so easily for me that was dysfunctional now, because this new relationship has no connection to that past pattern that now this, when I try and, and put that past pattern into it, it just feels like, Whoa, this doesn't belong. Right. Like this healthier pattern that we're creating is brilliant. And so moving into the dating in that way, and I found that when I started doing um, the social media dating, I found that I started getting pretty intentional about how I was going to interact with people. And so I started asking really tough, intimate questions right up front. And a lot of men would just like immediately disappear off my feet, <laughs> right? Because they didn't want to answer the tough, intense questions. And I found that that when I asked questions like, listen, I want to hear about some of your, your greatest successes and failures in your life. I want to hear about what your greatest weakness is. I want to hear, you know, questions that you don't ask, like two text messages into social media dating usually. Mm -hmm. And I just started jumping into it really soon because I'm like, listen, I'm just going to clear the field. Like all the people who do not want that kind of engagement, they're going to disappear. And the people that do are going to stick around and answer some questions. And we're going to be able to find out fairly quickly if we're a good match or we're not. And so that's one of the things that I learned about how to how to narrow it down. Cause somebody's asked me, they're like, how did you find three guys in one year that are pretty yeah. amazing? And yeah. I'm like, well, I, I started clearing the field right away. I didn't hang around and text somebody for three weeks with what's your favorite color and what's your favorite <laughs> band. And I mean, we, I don't even know what my, what the favorite band is of this guy that I'm dating now. And we've been dating for about two and a half months. I have no idea. We don't have those kinds of conversations. I mean, it'll come up, I'm sure at some point, but we're, <laughs> we're just so much more intentional about what we're creating and how we're creating it. It's, it's a brilliant, beautiful, amazing space. So, but how does he load the dishwasher? That's what I want to know. <laughs> um, very well. Good, 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 good. <laughs> he does a good job, but we talked about it. <laughs> yeah. How funny. Well, there are three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. So I will ask those of you right now. The first question is, is do you have a calling? And if so, what is it? Yes, I am the Ward Activities Committee chairperson. Oh, good. We have those again, and you're that. <laughs> I am. They just took me out of Relief Society, and I cried, cried, because I loved teaching Relief Society so much. I love the discussions, and our ward is very open. The women in our ward are very open. So we have some really brilliant, vulnerable discussions in there, and I loved being a being the discussion leader for that. It was fun for me. So, so what's yeah. the big activity you got planned? Because you got your sights set on something. Um, probably the next biggest one would be the ward camp out over the summer, okay. but we've got to have a meeting. Yeah. So I've been so busy. Can I say this? I've been so busy dating that yeah. <laughs> I haven't called the meeting yet. So I'm oh, it must be rough. Oh, it must be rough. <laughs> so difficult so for you. Beautiful. It's so amazing. <laughs> uh, the last question. Oh, no, wait. The next question is, is if we, if you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? Um, a combo of those. I would teach Relief Society every single week. Hmm. I, I, before I was teaching it like once every two and a half months, which just was not satisfying for me um, because it's, I loved it when I taught, but I love the discussions. I love having 
discussions about things that really matter. And we did in our Relief Society. And I, I really enjoyed it. I've, I've loved, there's an older lady in our ward who's so cute. And I always thought that she was a little bit like, yeah, you're kind of pushing boundaries a little bit with these lessons. I kind of got that feeling for which is whatever, for whatever reason, I don't know. But when I got released, she came up and she's like, I am so sad you're being released because I loved your lessons. And I was like, mm-hmm. boy, I totally misread that one. Yeah. You know, cause she's, I thought she would just be like older and because I, I do push the boundaries a little bit with, with the thinking. And so anyway, so I would teach Relief Society every single week. Mm. That's what I would do. The final question that we ask everyone and ask that you interpret it however you would like, but the question remains, what is your favorite part of your faith? Um, the space of growth. I love that it's not a space where I have to stay like I am. I, I love the freedom to access the atonement, to become a different person. When I look back at who I was when I just got divorced six and a half years ago, I don't even recognize that person anymore. I don't recognize her feelings. I don't recognize her ideas about what life was. I, I don't recognize any part of her. And I'm so grateful that the atonement allows me to progress and move forward and acknowledge my you know, my weaknesses, my, my strengths, my sins, and I get to grow and create something different every single day. That growth piece is so valuable to me. So Tanya, if people want to reach out to you, or you mentioned within our discussion, uh, the podcast, where can people find more Tanya Hale? All right. So my podcast is called intentional living with Tanya Hale, and it's pretty much everywhere that you're going to look for your podcast. I have a website, tanyahale.com. I mostly, I I market to divorced LDS middle-aged women is really who I market to, but I have coached men. I've coached teenagers. I've coached women who are not getting divorced. I just think all of this is brilliant. I also have a Facebook and an Instagram, and that's just Tanya Hale LDS Life Coaching is where you can find me on both of those. Tanya, uh, we hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy (laughs) enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, that you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat on the back row.